0: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Center. Welcome to New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Curato, Professor of Political Sociology at the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra in Australia and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Michael McCammitt of the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Dr. McCammitt is the author of Ethno-Religious Otherings and Passionate Conflicts, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. The book lays bare the causal mechanisms— that lead state and non-state actors to identify particular ethno-religious groups as threats to security, power, and status. He focuses on the cases of Indonesia, Myanmar, and the Philippines to demonstrate how ethno-religious others are transformed from strangers to enemies through passions, nationalism, and securitization. The book is available open access, so you can download and read it for free. Mike, welcome to the new books in Southeast Asian Studies.
1: Thank you, Nicole. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure.
0: So, let's talk about passions, but not just <laughs> the kind of passions uh, or desires, but the kind of emotion that shapes the character of conflicts that you um, observed in Southeast Asia. Um, but before we talk about the book's core arguments, um, let's begin with the backstory. Um, right. In the book, I, I noticed that you situate yourself um, in the fields of international relations as well as peace and conflict studies, but you found many of the, let's say, dominant theories, such as mm. rationalist approaches, um, these approaches yeah. not fully capture uh, the complexity yeah. of violent and protracted conflict. So what is, what is the backstory of this project?
1: Yeah, I'm um... You know, I grew up in the Philippines, uh, being exposed to news about the violent protracted conflicts across the southern region in Mindanao. And my grandparents loved watching the 6 o'clock evening news. And there will be news about the fightings, the killings, and the abductions taking place in different parts of Mindanao. And I remember asking my grandparents, and this was in the mid 90s and early 2000s, questions like, why are these things happening? What could be the main reason why these people keep fighting? And killing each other even though we're all supposed to be filipinos and um, because i grew up in a catholic family and within a catholic community the narrative that i became accustomed to hearing um, was that these bad things were happening because of the muslims you know the perceived by many in our community to be untrustworthy, dangerous and just not good people and this gave the very parochial insular impression among many in our community that the muslims were the enemies of the government and at the time, you know, the word othering wasn't part of my vocabulary yet. Uh, the only time that I started to have a more critical understanding of these events was when I started the university, where I became exposed to the centuries of injustice and exploitation experienced by the Muslims in the Philippines. But at the time, I didn't really know what to do about it. I didn't know what to do with the new information that I learned and the new outlook and paradigm that I ended up adopting. All I knew was that I felt terribly bad and uncomfortable. Um, I felt somehow guilty even when I did my master's and PhD. I didn't I didn't have the courage to use those opportunities to you know examine and try to answer these questions that I had been waiting to answer for the longest time but was too reluctant to confront. And then one day uh, I got my first academic job back in um, 2016, which had given me access to research funding. And one summer, uh, while writing a grant proposal, I took a good hard look at myself and made the decision to finally confront these questions and see what I can find out. And the academic year, 2016, 2017, also happened to coincide with the resurfacing of a series of clashes with ethnic and religious undertones of Southeast Asia. You know, for example, in, in December 2016, um, huge Muslim crowds descended on Jakarta to demand the capital's former governor, a Christian named Ahok, be arrested for allegedly insulting Islam. And in May of the following year, the government forces in the Philippines clashed you know, with armed, armed fighters from two affiliated groups, Yampasayab and the Maute, in the southern city of Marawi. And then in 2017, a uh, deadly crackdown by the Burmese armed forces, the Tatmadaw, on Rohingya Muslims sent hundreds of thousands fleeing across the border into Bangladesh. So, these events became the foundations and starting points for my Marie guri Horizon 2020 research project called The Divine Tragedy of the Sacred, uh, Security, Religion, and Nationalism in Southeast Asia, and which in turn gave birth to this book, uh, ethno religious Otherings and Passionate Conflicts. Um, when I did my exploratory fieldwork in these countries back in 2017, even really before I received the funding from the European Commission, one thing stood up to me, and that's the significant incongruence between how the actual actors involved in violent, protracted conflicts think and act on the one hand, and the mainstream theories of how they are expected to respond and behave on the other. So, the overarching goal of making complicated matters easier to grasp and understand, you know, Swager Peterson puts it, um, compel- compels us often to pursue theoretical and methodological perspicuity based on the assumption of not only rational actors and which in turn sanitizes the phenomena under investigation. Um, but as as I say in the book, um, rationalization and sanitation can be particularly problematic when studying conflicts, as these issues prevent the researcher from diving into the actual emotional, the symbolic, and perceptual experiences of the actors involved, and that are simultaneously being produced by and are underpinning these events. Now, many of the people whom I have met during my fieldwork have lived through the horrific violence of internal and interstate conflicts and similar to the observations of previous scholars who have studied the connections between emotions and conflicts, such extraordinary experiences have left powerful emotional, symbolic, and perceptual externalities among those who have been affected both directly and indirectly. And these externalities are potent potent and as tangible as the, the arms and capital that often define Western rationalist views of conflict and so I discussed my uh, discovery from my research and emphasized in the book. You know these unresolved hostile, emotive, symbolic, and perceptual mechanisms of ethno nod, each othering are the invisible engines that help and drive and sustain the violent conflicts across Southeast Asia. So that's the rather <laughs> long and um, yeah you know, twisted uh, joy towards the book. But yeah, that's essentially the the backstory of the, the whole book.
0: No that's that's a fantastic overview of the book and I must say that when I was reading the book you articulated uh, clearly articulated um two um theses or arguments and I know these yeah. two arguments are closely related um but for now uh, let's focus on yeah. the first one where you identify if I'm not mistaken the term you used was constitutive structures uh, that comprise ethno religious othering so right. yeah, yeah. pages I, I'm not sure if they're actually stages and perhaps give an example from your field in archival research.
1: All right, thanks. Um, so in answering the book's overarching research question, and that is, how does a once-familiar and benign ethnological community become a stranger and a threat? I, I developed and proved the utility of what I referred to in the book as the other framework. And in constructing the framework and formulating its supporting propositions, I integrated the such psychological dimensions of emotions, symbolic dispositions, and perception, with the more sociological dimensions of security, religion, and nationalism. And the idea here really is to emphasize that for those who have survived and continue to live through these extraordinary events, the uh, emotional, symbolic, and perceptual externalities of their experiences are as potent and as real as the bonds and money that define the mainstream mainstream rationalist views of conflict. And Accordingly, the enormous passions being spent on these long and brutal battles require an explanation that explicitly recognizes their presence and role in conflicts. The quote, Donald uh, Horowitz, a bloody phenomenon cannot be explained by a bloodness theory. And so against this backdrop, my main objective is to offer an alternative account of how violent conflicts erupt into the trap by incorporating these unduly neglected elements in my investigation and analysis. Um, So applying the ethno-religious othering framework that I developed, I uncovered and explained the underlying dynamics through which the very first stage of all internal and interstate conflicts get set in motion and crystallized. And that is the manufacturing of the ethno-religious others as security threats. As I demonstrated throughout the book chapters, the uh, reinvention and reconstitution of the specific target groups into strangers and enemies is being driven by three uh, interrelated phases of ethno-religious, mecha- ethno-religious othering mechanism. Um, and these are the cultivation of the hostile emotive effects of ethno-religious nationalism, the uh, securitization of ethno-religious others using constant world predispositions, and the sacralization of hostile perceptions of ethno-religious identities, Our homelands and territorial nation states. So, collectively, uh, these constitutive structures of ethno-indigious othering are the channels through which the prevailing arrangements and relations between the insiders and outsiders are either reconfigured or reinforced. More specifically, they are the invisible engines that facilitate the recalibration, or say, the rebalancing of the relative security, the power, and status between the referent and the target ethno-religious factions within pluralistic polities. So throughout the whole process, uh, these, you know, what I uh, like to call in the book as structural engines, they are simultaneously driving, uh, producing, and are being powered by the hostile and chauvinistic elements of emotions, symbolic predispositions, and perceptions, and therefore are people that are reimagining and the negotiating of the ethno-religious others' state of being and position. So Using the interpretive process tracing method, um, I have theoretically and empirically probed how how these identified causal mechanisms work in actual cases by comparatively examining, um, as you mentioned, the experiences of rival ethno-religious communities with violent conflicts in Indonesia, in Myanmar, and the Philippines. And the evidence I have gathered and analyzed from these cases reveal how the ethno-religious othering process proceeds. So just a very brief um, example, um, so we give it the phase one, which is the uh, the two-way shared cultivation of chauvinistic ethno-religious nationalism between the elite and the non-elite actors generate hostile emotive effects that induce rival groups within pluralistic politics like market. for instance, um, to adopt a survivalist, choke-some security logic vis-a-vis their identity and and territory. So here. Um, my main investigation of the emotive mechanistic evidence of ethno-religious othering between the Buddhist Burmese and the other Muslims in Myanmar demonstrates how ethno-religious nationalism provides uh, the affective affective lexicon yeah, that the elite and the non-elite agents jointly cultivate and exploit, and this language you know, enables them to initiate the othering of the target group by serving as a primary reservoir of identity and morale on the one hand as well as by uh, legitimizing the appeals for group mobilization amid the shifting structural conditions underpinning their relative security, power, and status. And the hostile emotions that crystallize through this process, you know, such as fear, anger, hatred, rage, and resentment, they engender a collective view among the members of the rival and groups that they are all responsible for the security and survival of their own ethnic faith. Right? And such, in devising an emotive discourse, designed to revitalize and reinforce the foundations of their respective identities and homelands become a crucial part of their defense strategy against the existential threats posed by um, the ethno-religious So, But the thing is, while the cultivation and propagation of particular forms of ethno-religious nationalism provides the reference group with a greater sense of security and control it also creates corresponding levels of insecurity on the part of the target group, right? So hence, in phase two, um, I, I argue that, you know, the survivalist 0 sum security logic in turn motivates the relevant state and non-state elites to securitize rival factions as threats to their security to get their power and status based on their own symbolic predispositions informed by the hostile emotive effects of ethno nationalism but also with the active participation and consent of their respective constituencies. So building up on the Myanmar case, um, my investigation of the symbolic mechanistic evidence of ethnoligious othering demonstrates how the securitization of target ethnoligious groups as existential threats defines the given realities of the security context underpinning a pluralistic polity. Right? So by marking specific targets, such as the Rohingya Muslims as enemies, the securitizing agents from rival factions are able to project blame, the blame onto each other. Right. So this, in turn, allows them to concoct and employ the necessary chauvinistic solutions for defeating their designated enemies with the approval and consent of their respective constituencies. Right. So by by tapping into their groups' hostile predispositions, meaning their prejudiced beliefs, their biases and ideologies, these securitizing Securitizing agents construct and employ threat frames right, that resonate credibly and strongly with their audiences, right? thereby convincing them about the reality of the threats posed by the ethno-religious others. Not surprisingly, um, the in-group's negative biases toward the out-group amplify their feelings of threat. Right. So when confronted with the latter's suspicious behaviors, um, but what I find rather interesting is the fact that you know when faced with what seems like an obvious threat. The in-group's more positive biases with respect to the out-group do not deter the uh, the former from feeling threatened, right? But only reinforce its hostile predispositions against the latter, right? So in, in navigating these new realities that emerge, this process um, aggression, intolerance, and ethnocentrism become regular features of ethno-religious relations. And then um, finally, in, in phase B, I just do wrap this up. The, uh, the successful cultivation of the hostile emotive effects of ethno-religious nationalism and uh, the effective securitization of the other ethno-religious group using hostile symbolic predispositions, um, the state and non-state elites are now better positioned to solidify their group's legitimacy, their authority, and primacy further by sacralizing their hostile perceptions of indivisible ide- ethno-religious identities, homelands, and nation states. Right. So, following the case of Myanmar, um, my investigation of the perceptual mechanistic evidence of ethno-religious othering demonstrates how state and non-state agents' attempts, um, from the more dominant faction, okay, to, to sacralize their ideal ethno-religious identity, their homeland and territorial nation-state, um, within Myanmar's puristic polity, facilitate the eviction and extermination of a target group. And so they do this by embedding their own groups, ethno-religious substructures, meaning our myths, you know, our doctrines, our norms, and our dogmas, into the state's security superstructures, meaning the rhetoric, the policies, strategies, institutions of the state. Right? So, whereas the predominant groups' ethno-religious substructures dictate the nature and the content of the security superstructures developed by the state agents, the superstructures adopted by the latter further legitimize and ensconce the former substructures. So given this case, not only do the majority are able to preserve the perceived purity of their indivisible identity and homeland, they're also able to maintain their preferred ideational and material constitution of the overarching nation state. Right? So the dangers posed by the ethno religious others to the what we call infallibility, right? What they perceive to be as the infallibility of the majority's perceptions of chosenness and sacredness. These are routinely suppressed through this process that reduce the former to what you know the other scholars like um Julia Kristeva, Judith Bakda and Sarah Ahmed um referred to as uh ab- abject strangers, mm-hmm. whose lives are not worthy of grief at all. Mm-hmm. And this easily justifies the war and bloodshed that are pursued to banish these polluted and poisoned others out of their homeland. Yeah, so hence, as I um uh, emphasizing the book, you know, without proper recognition for these intangible yet inherently crucial emotive, symbolic, and perceptual causal mechanisms, violent protracted conflicts, such as those that I uh, are in Myanmar, in Indonesia, and the Philippines, are always bound to re-emerge, to re-emerge and to trap the um, constant production and utilization of hostile emotions or symbolic predispositions and perceptions via these uh, ethno-religious othering causal mechanisms entrap the numbers of competing groups into a series of mass hostility, security dilemma, and chauvinist political mobilization. Consequently, conflict resolution strategies and peace settlement negotiations that do not recognize, regulate, and reconcile these emotive, symbolic, and perceptual mechanisms, they are just as durable as the house of cards, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's my gist of the uh, the, the book and the the causal mechanisms that I've um tried to explain uh, in, in the in the B side, so
0: no that's such a, a generous um summary of the book and I'm sure our listeners are more intrigued to read uh the book now to um go go uh, get a deeper dive of of the case studies There are the scholars that you mentioned earlier Butler Christ and ahmed uh, these are not names that I typically read uh inter- in international in textbooks at the very least. Although, of course, there is a growing field already that recognizes the importance of passions and emotions uh, in peace and uh, conflict. So I'm curious to know what the debates are in the field, particularly how people who take a more rationalist approach um, to peace and conflict and international relations, how do they receive your work? What are the kinds of critiques that you receive um, from people who don't share the same framework uh, that you advance.
1: Yeah, uh, a very interesting question. Um, to be fair, I'd like to think that uh, our colleagues in in IR uh, are very receptive to different paradigms and different interpretations of our phenomena. That you know, at the end of the day, as social scientists and as uh, scholars of conflicts and and, and peace, for instance. Um, we just want to be able to contribute to the body of knowledge that we have and be able to advance the understanding of these phenomena and um depending on our own biases obviously we'll have to take up decisions uh that we think would be uh, useful and effective in not only uh, understanding this phenomenon, but also in, in advancing uh, ways that how to resolve uh, these issues, specifically violent productive conflicts. So there are those, obviously, who are quite um, skeptic about uh, the nature of, of, you know, studying conflicts um, by, by specifically focusing on, on affect, okay, right? emotions, opinions, perceptions, um, because of the fact that, number one, they're very difficult to, to measure, right? Um, when you say, hey, when you say uh affect, emotions, predispositions or perceptions, how exactly do you quantify that? How exactly are you going to um study that? I mean they're they're invisible, they're quite elusive. But then I always um begin with the starting point that you know, just because you can't see something doesn't I mean it doesn't exist, right? And and the fact that you don't have the mechanisms, the tools to um measure these things um shouldn't prohibit you from actually doing something. to do you know, at least trying to understand um how these um elements affect the whole phenomenon, right? So that's, that's always my uh, main starting point. you know. On one hand, just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And on the other hand, just because you can measure something uh, doesn't mean you have to measure them. Like in my case, what I really want to find out is not to um, come up with um, more generalizable theories, for example, that can be applied to all cases. That's not just something that I'm not um, interested in as a scholar. Um, I'm more interested in finding out exactly how these uh, intangible, but very powerful um, elements actually work in, in real life context. Yeah, which is why uh, for me doing a field work is uh, a very important aspect of, of that uh, research. I'm not saying that um, you know the other uh, methods that are being employed by our colleagues or you know other scholars and experts in the field are not valuable, not at all. I mean, they're very helpful, you know, in trying to come up with um, more generalizable um, understanding of these phenomena. But um, as a scholar, as an individual scholar myself, I'm more interested in finding out, you know, how the mechanisms work um, in, in real world context at the granular, personal, lived experience level of these um, of these people who are directly involved and, and are suffering from from these um, events. So at the end of the day, you know, I think um it's great to have these conversations. Um not everybody obviously would um understand or perhaps they would understand but then they wouldn't accept uh, you know, the the results or the outcomes. Um or at the very you know, least, you know, they would question you about it. And that's fine, you know, that's the nature of our work as, as academics. Um but at the end of the day, um, my only hope is to be able to um, provide, you know, a, a, an authoritative understanding uh, and, 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 and explanations to these, uh, phenomena. and for me, that's, that's more than enough, really. And um, you know, if you engage with my work and, 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 question it, brilliant. You know, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. Um, but at the same time, that's, you know, that's my intellectual stance on the whole, uh, issue between doing rationalist quantitative uh, research and conflict, and the more um, interpretive, qualitative, and research-based, uh, fieldwork-based um, research and conflict.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the yeah. focus will, um, especially in discussing the method um, that you used, I think the, the yeah. book provides a, a masterclass on how to use process tracing, right, to identify causal mechanisms. So here's a tip to our listeners who <laughs> were searching <laughs> <questions> <laughs> method, um, for their project. I think the book does an excellent job um, discussing Thank the but I think what also intrigued me about uh, the book is how your data gathering process was so was so grounded. As you mentioned, this is what yeah. you know fieldwork affords researchers. So each chapter um, yes. starts with your thoughtful field notes, where you yes. uh, this is my impression where you seemingly talk to morally questionable actors or to me are morally mm-hmm. questionable. Mm-hmm. Actors. Um, One of your respondents, I remember, was part of the group that carried out the attack in Bali. Uh, Another one described Rohingyas as termites. And then there's your encounter in the Philippines where Muslims were described as, if I'm not mistaken, terrorist animals or something to that them. So my question is, what are your principles in field research in Southeast Asia? Do you you take an empathetic position with your respondents, even though... What what they're saying is quite shocking or did you take the position of a neutral observer or a, I don't know, reflexive social scientist? Uh, what was what mm-hmm. your ethical disposition in the field?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, speaking of the reviewers uh, you mentioned uh, a while ago, Nicole, uh, one of the reviewers was actually quite reluctant about uh, me uh, starting each chapter with the field notes um, because, it it, it were, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the recent data was that um, it might... Um, the uh readers were actually reading it or taking it a bit more seriously because it starts out in a rather informal tone because of the the way that the field notes were written. But um, uh, was written. But uh, the thing is, I as I um justified with my ah uh, editor, um, I I told them that uh, the reason why I like to start with the field notes is to let the readers know the situation that I'm in. I, um that this is this is the this is the situation that I'm facing that I'm um having to good one as a researcher and, and the idea was to help them um again or give give them some, some kind of idea uh and visualization about you know, how they to do field work, the experiences that you go through uh, as a field researcher. Um so to to answer the, your your question, um uh conducting field research, you know, in such hostile and precarious contracts is Context is definitely taxing and and even punishing, but at the same time, um, richly rewarding. Uh, for me to be effective in my role as a researcher, uh, I think it's crucial to find a good and healthy balance between um, empathy and ref- reflexivity. Um, and, and so, I tend to operate along that empathy reflexivity continuum. And to do this, I always remind myself that I'm here to listen. Um, this thing is not always easy to do, especially when you hear answers to questions. Which are in stark contrast to your own views, your values and principles, and even your own biases. Um, and with confronting such scenarios, I tell myself that I'm not there to prove myself, and definitely not to make myself feel better about my own world views, but to probe and interrogate, you know, a social phenomenon as robustly and as meaningfully as I can. And to do this, I constantly remind myself of my positionality as a researcher, as a global of academic. From a working class background, I grew up in a Catholic community, but it's now an years. It happens to be gay. That's it. Okay. Right? And and by doing this, I'm I'm reminded of how both of my baggages and my privileges that come from that positionality invariably influence my whole treatment and conduct of the research, you know, from its conceptualization all the way to the publication of my findings and analysis. So when you ask your participants questions about those traumatic events that happen to their lives and they're gracious enough to let you take a peek into their most personal and most vulnerable state that they try to bury in the deepest of senses of their minds. I think that the least the least human thing that we can do is uh, as field researchers is you know to acknowledge and recognize the reality of those things. so mm-hmm. that's that's my mm-hmm. position with, when it comes to um, doing field research especially in hostile uh, environments.
0: Yeah, that's that's completely plausible. Um, of course, the book is not just a, a robust piece of um, academic work. It also has practical implications. So in one of the yeah. chapters, you said that promoting ethno-religious reconciliation initiatives anchored on emotive, yeah. symbolic, and perceptual regulation should be or would be paramount. What does that mean, mm. and what does this look like in practice?
1: Right. Uh, for me, all this means is that the the emotional, the symbolic, and perceptual foundations of all social relationships and political activities need to be thoroughly rethought and renovated. And doing so requires dramatic effort and unwavering commitment on the part of all state and non-state efforts of the elites and the ordinary members of the society, within pluralistic polities, to number one recultivate ethno-religious nationalism in a manner that produces more positive, if not constructive, emotive effects. Right. Number two, to securitize, um, desecuritize the ethnoreligious others through the use and propagation of more benign symbolic predispositions. And number three, to desacralize you know, all these chauvinistic perceptions of ethnoleligious purity, indivisibility, and homogeneity in favor of more non-threatening perceptions of diverse identity, shared homeland, and inclusive territorial nation state. Obviously. Reimagining and reconstructing these divisive and contentious domestic affairs into more harmonious and peaceful relationships via uh, reconciliation initiatives would not be easy and on free. Um, basing it on the experiences of the Southeast Asian countries I studied, um, such tasks would take decades to produce results if they are even undertaken. Um, into the wars wage and the genocide suffered by competing ethno religious communities generated new emotional symbolic and perceptual externalities that were harnessed to vilify and dehumanize the other even more rationalizing the further battles and that undermine the logic of reconciliatory concessions and compromises um indeed you know the act of reconciliation is a tremendously complicated goal that cannot be fully genuinely realized just by signing peace treaties um amid the profound Presence of hostile and chauvinistic emotions, avoid presuppositions and perceptions that are interwoven into the consciousness, the lived experiences, and the memories of individuals and communities. Conflict and peace experts, therefore, must persistently strive for stable and massive solutions. Because if we want to do, you know, undo you know, the, the invisible strings of ethno-religious arbiting, to once again humanize and embrace the stranger and the enemy, it takes enormous time and extraordinary resolve. But um, it is the necessary first step in breaking the cycle of violently passionate conflicts, in my view. Um,
0: Right. And finally, Mike, we want to know what you are working on right now. Is there a new book in the pipeline? You're very prolific and always insightful. Uh,
1: Alex, thanks. You are all that and more. But anyway... um, Storing and building on the key findings from the book, uh, about my current research project, um, which I hope to be um, able to conduct with my uh, co-investigators from Hiroshima and Galway Universities, uh, aims to transform how we think about and pursue peace building by placing these emotions, both predispositions, and perceptions at the front and center of peace negotiations and conflict resolution strategies. So we hope to be able to do this by developing and implementing our novel effective peacebuilding approach designed to tackle the hostile affect resulting from and sustaining violent conflicts between rival ethno religious groups More specifically um, the development and implementation of our effective peace framework and education program through uh, deliberative workshops which are obviously the uh, the queen of that and grassroots focus group discussions um, will allow us to gauge uh, the extent to which our approach can improve the hostile Effective relationships between the rival groups in the northern, del Sur, Philippines, and in Maluku, Indonesia. Uh, we're not touching into Myanmar yet just because of the current situation there. But um, yeah, we're focusing on these uh, two countries. And, and as I uh, explained uh, earlier, the periodic clashes that continue to devastate these communities are examples of the destructive legacies of violent protected conflicts. And their lingering presence underscores our Case for effective peace building, that even when violent protracted conflicts have primarily rationalist objects, security, power, or status, the unaddressed affective residues or externalities of their lived experiences continue to fuel and drive these conflicts. So, this means that arresting the cycle of violent conflicts that characterize these communities demands the rethinking and rebuilding of our emotional, our symbolic, and our perceptual relationships between the viable ethno-religious groups involved. And through the uh, effective peacebuilding approach, we hope to be able to help in breaking that cycle of mass hostility, the security dilemma, and the chauvinist political mobilization generated by violent, protracted conflicts across um, Southeast Asia and beyond.
0: Dr. Makamit, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Nicole. Uh, I, had, I had a great time and all the best.
0: Dr. Michael Makamit is the author of Ethno-Religious Otherings and Passionate Conflicts, published by Oxford University Press. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app.